Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your mercy you've allowed us to meet here today. We ask that your spirit be with us as we seek to understand what it means to truly be a follower of your son Jesus. May this not just be a lecture or kind of discussion of a text, but by your word and by your spirit, we ask that you would penetrate our hearts. You would really engage our minds and reorientate us to, to be more like you. Though some of these applications may be easy to see, we know that our sinful hearts will fight against them. But we thank you that you love us too much just to leave us as we are. So be with us now. In your precious name, amen. So, if you've just joined us, a few people, new faces, to kind of fill you in where we're up to. We've been systematically going through uh, a section of Luke's Gospel called Chapter 6. So today we're at the end of kind of Jesus' sermon. That's kind of known as Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Over the last few weeks, what Jesus has basically done is explain what it's like to live in God's kingdom. I think that's really important, especially if we haven't been here for the others. Let's get this clear, that Jesus hasn't been explaining how we become one of his followers, a disciple. But more, what he's been doing, he's been explaining how we would live as one of his followers. You could say it's kind of the way of the kingdom rather than the way into the kingdom. I hope that makes sense because I think it really will shape a lot of our understanding of what Jesus has to say today. In this passage, there is a big question that looms out. I think it's this. We read these words. Do we know what it means to follow Jesus? Do we understand what it means for us, sitting here in Aylesfield, to be a Christian? So as I said, we're towards the end of the sermon, but Jesus won't just let us nod along. He's such a good teacher, he's not going to allow that. And in fact, he explains here that the issue at stake is too great. Jesus is not going to allow us to say yes with our mouths, but not with our lives. Because hopefully we'll see in the passage today that the issue at stake is far too dangerous. Chapter 6 in many ways is act as a template for, for kind of Jesus' followers. So what Jesus is saying now, he's saying look back at what I've, I've said. And in light of what I've said, can you honestly say that you're doing this? Can you say that you're living out what I've just been teaching? And that's what he's saying to us today. Are we modelling the mercy that Jesus showed us? Wasn't so much an option, but was an outworking of what we've received. That was a few weeks ago in verses 27 to 36. If you look down, it says, We are to be merciful, verse 36, just as our Father is merciful to us. That is what true disciples of Jesus are to be like. That is what we are to be like if we are to call ourselves Christians. So... Well, since we heard this a few weeks ago, the big question for that is, has it really made any difference? Maybe you were, you know, all kind of modelling perfect forgiveness. Maybe you are a forgiveness machine. Or maybe you're a bit more like me. And even just a couple of days after Andy preached it, it was there. You know, the Monday morning I was there. I was really feeling quite merciful, kind of mercy vibes coming out. But then life got busy again. And to be honest, that guy I work with, he is really quite annoying. I only work with one guy. <laughs> and I'm guessing I'm not the only one who felt a bit like this. And maybe I'm not the only one who thought that the idea of Jesus teaching on forgiveness was pretty good. It was the kind of thing I could nod away to, particularly if I was on the receiving end. But again, I think I can already look back at the last few weeks, and it's painfully true that there are too many situations when it was clearly absent from my relationships, even with those that I love the most. 
And all this, despite the fact that I expect constant forgiveness in my relationship with God. Am I the only one who feels a bit like this after the last few weeks? Well, as we'll see in verses 43 to 45, Jesus is asking us to look back at the teaching like this. He's kind of saying, look guys, I provided this sermon. It's a lens through which you can look at your lives. So do it, look at it. He's saying this is like our, our kind of personal checkup. It's a, it's a way of highlighting the work of Jesus in our hearts. Or perhaps it's a highlight of the absence of it. Which leads us to our first point today. It seems clear in this that following Jesus always changes us. A heart that is engaged by Jesus will be different and it will be clear. Verses 43 to 45. Perhaps it's really helpful to think about the makeup of the crowd. Let's picture who Jesus is talking to. So in chapter 6, if we go back to verse 17... It says it's a large crowd of his disciples, they're all there, but also a great number of other people from all over the place. It names a few different regions. So you've got the kind of inner crowd, you've got Jesus' true disciples, his gang, his kind of core posse, maybe that's not the right term, but you know what I mean, the main disciple group. But then on the outside, you've also got those on the fringes. You've got those who maybe they don't hear or they don't listen at all, but you know, they want to be part of the crowd. We've all been there, you know, we see something, we want to see what's going on. Maybe they want to see a bit of a show, see some of the healing. Maybe they're just seeing what they can get from it. And I think from the passage, it's fair to say that there's also going to be those that do listen. Those that, you know, might appear quite disciple-like. But when it comes down to the reality of life, they just don't want to put it into practice. I think we could definitely say that the crowd is much like the average congregation, the average church today. Perhaps we could even say that it bears some resemblance to us here. So closing his sermon, speaking to this crowd, thinking about who he's speaking to, Jesus starts with a simple but brilliant illustration. Look down at verse 43. It says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Seems quite straightforward so far. We are trees, fruit is what we do. Us trees, works, doing stuff, that is the fruit. But maybe... Maybe that isn't that simple. Because maybe part of us thinks, well, that isn't the kind of, that's not the gospel that I understood. That's not the kind of grace that I'm used to. Maybe that's not such a great illustration, Jesus. But, you know, we're kind of, we're always saying we're all about relationships, not religion. Aren't we? Well, yes. But there's also, no, there's a reality check here. It seems apparent in the New Testament that our relationship with God will always produce good fruit. And it's because our relationship with God is rooted in God's loving and gracious character. If you think about it, if that's what we're grounded in, how could what we do not reflect this? So Jesus is making really clear right from the beginning that what we do is important. But it's not just about what you might call works. It's not just about the outward or the superficial. Because that's the brilliance of this illustration. Think about the language he uses. There's no way using this idea that you could separate the doer from the deed. You can't separate, you could separate it no more easily than you could the fruit from a tree. That's why it's so brilliant. It's brilliant because Jesus is saying, yes, the fruit is ultimately important. But it's kind of ultimately inseparable from a changed heart. You can't have one without the other. So I was kind of thinking about this last few days. I was thinking, well... Does that mean then, when I've had a really good day, you know, when I kind of nailed a quiet time, I thought, that's that, that's boxed off. I've kind of been uber merciful, I've kind of done, yes, I'm going for it. Does that mean I'm more in the kingdom that day and 
maybe those are the days where I've maybe not done this stuff. Am I just sitting outside? Well, I don't think so. Uh, any of you who've been up to the study recently will have learned that I'm not a gardener, but I am growing some chilies, and they are, you know, they're, yeah, it's good. Now, if you looked at them maybe the last few weeks, you wouldn't have been particularly impressed. You'd have been mostly sold on my kind of enthusiasm for them. But I'm hoping that if you were to come and judge them in a year's time, and maybe, hopefully not that long, but you would look at them and say, James, you've got a gift. You are a great chilli grower. Well done. Yes. Why would you do that? Because you wouldn't just be taking a snapshot. It just wouldn't be a moment taken. Your judgment would be based across the life. And it's the same here. It's why the illustration is so brilliant again. It's about a life lived out rooted in God's saving work. That over time would bear fruit and reflect what we're rooted in. It's pretty challenging though. Because it's inescapable to think, can we look back at our own lives and do we see this fruit being born? Can we see the growth apparent in our lives? Verse 45, Jesus says, good things come out of the good stored up in our hearts. He's really hammering this home. This idea that a true disciple kind of has inside him treasure, good things that will work their way out to others. I don't know how you feel about that one. I think it's, it's pretty cool. But it's also pretty challenging. Part of me doesn't like the idea that, you know, what's in my heart will actually come out. That people will actually see what's really going on inside. Let's just look at it. Jesus presents the mouth here at the end of verse 45. It's kind of like the litmus test of our spiritual life. It's the exit route for these good things or these bad things. It says there, for the mouth speaks... What the heart is full of. Again, I think context is very helpful here. If you remember the last time Andy spoke on this, Jesus' dialogue in verses 39 to 42, he's speaking particularly with a weight to those who teach others. But our words here are again tied to the kind of inclination of our heart. This is a big challenge. You know, before we seek to speak to anyone else, teach anyone else, what do we need to examine first? What? our own hearts. I think certainly the hardest part about preparing a sermon like this is not so much crafting points or finding illustrations or even grappling with the odd strange word. I think it's saying, can I actually see this in my own heart? Am I being challenged by God's word before I speak to other people? Of all our fruits, our words are perhaps the most revealing. They're the most blatant kind of outworking of who we truly are. Words do matter and they should matter. They matter because, verse 44, it appears that our hearts are kind of so full of our passions, of our thoughts, of our real desires, that who we truly are just flows out. It doesn't feel like we can stop it. The language there, it's the picture, it's just coming out whether we want it or not. I'm sure many of us can think back to people in our lives who've had a real profound and wonderful impact because they couldn't help but speak about the gospel. I can definitely think about people that really led me to Christ. Those people, it would just be amazing to be one of them. Don't you think? It would just be awesome. To one day stand in glory and be embraced by our saviour, commending how we used our words. That would be amazing. But sadly, I can also think of too many times when my mouth definitely kicked into gear before it should have. You know, you know the kind of moments, those ones where you just look back and you kind of go, oh no, why did I say that? And why is it so painful? Well, because it's not just a superficial, but actually that's showing people who I truly am. That's showing my heart. That's why it hurts. That's why we, we look back and think, well, why did I say that? 
But in many ways, that just makes the gospel that Jesus offers seem even more wonderful. Isn't it amazing? So Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to us here. And it's incredible that he allows sinners like us into his kingdom, that he wants people like us there. And if we think and we reflect on that, then we should be so thankful that he does change us. And he doesn't just throw us out like we deserve, but he chooses to change us and grow us and grow fruit through us. So, believer in Jesus, a true disciple, is going to be changed by obeying his words and bearing good fruit. That seems quite certain there, verses 34 to 35. But I still think there's one kind of niggling question there. Because if it's saying Christians should do this and should do that, then does that mean that I can kind of spot a Christian? Is it could be like a little game we could play? I mean, beyond kind of rainbow guitar straps and sandals and socks and questionable cardigans, could you just point around the room and go, Christian, not a Christian, maybe a Christian, Christian-ish? Well, no. And, and that's not to say that we aren't to be wise. That's not to say that we aren't to encourage one another and rebuke one another and in a loving way kind of pull each other up. But then that's what Jesus is saying here. Again, consider the context. Only a few sentences ago, we, we literally just heard Jesus talk about how we are to not judge others. The nature of this passage seems much more like Jesus is saying, examine your own life. Look at your own heart. Look at your fruit. If you want to see how you are doing, look at what fruit you are bearing. So if we call ourselves Christians here today, are we examining our lives? And again, with the, with the context of teaching, I think in particularly those who want to teach others, any of us who teach the kids, any of us who do home groups, church apprentices, under the lens of what Jesus is saying, can we actually see the fruit from chapter 6 in our lives? And if we can, just how thankful should we be? Thinking back to what our natural inclination of our heart is. Isn't it amazing that God would take rotten sinners like us and change us? It's just brilliant. So then Jesus continues this idea by showing us how we're going to do this. He doesn't just leave us to, to kind of flounder. He says what it's like to be a disciple bearing fruit. Verses 46 and 47. He says that true disciples, they go to Jesus, they hear Jesus, and then they act upon it. So again, essentially it's the same idea as earlier. You know, we might say that we, we can grasp intellectually the kind of things that Jesus says. We, we might even like it or appreciate it. That's pretty good. He's a good guy, Jesus. But this makes it clear that that is definitely different to truly knowing Jesus, to hearing his word and acting. Jesus lays out a model for discipleship in verse 47. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Three quite clear imperatives there. Really clear, really simple, yet we think of it as difficult. I don't think it's because it's difficult to comprehend, but perhaps just because we think it's difficult to do. Maybe we just don't want to do it. So let's put ourselves right into the situation. First part seems the simplest one. If we want to be true disciples, the first thing we must do is go to Jesus. So the Bible seems clear. No matter what anyone else says, it makes exclusive claims. It's either all the Bible or it's none of it. Jesus makes it clear that he is the only way to God. So if you want to know God, you've got to know him on his terms, how he's chosen to reveal himself through Jesus. Pretty straightforward. You want the truth, you go to Jesus. I think the first one's definitely the easiest. Second one, listen to him. Now, I don't know if you've ever lived with someone who can only do, well, can't do more than one thing at a time. Yeah, there's a few people nodded then. 
But I think you'll definitely understand what it's like for someone to have your words kind of entering their ears but not be listened to at all. You know, that kind of thing where they're nodding, but you know, you know they're not listening. Secretly, that there's a million miles away. But how often do we do this? How often do we listen with an intent to argue or reply rather than to understand? Rather than to be changed? And the true nature of how we listen is revealed by the last instruction. Because the last instruction, the final one, affirms the second. It's basically saying, upon hearing, we're going to do something, you're going to act. Look at Jesus' example in verse 46. He talks to these kind of people going up to him saying, Lord, Lord. Not a bad thing to do. John Stott said of this that, well, what better profession can there be? If you look at a few different commentaries, they've got some great descriptions of this. They say it's gracious, it's orthodox, it's public, it's dramatic, it's enthusiastic. But it's clearly not enough. Because what's this saying is, is that the Bible is not understood, not truly grasped until it's applied. Jesus is saying it is quite easy to pay lip service. It's actually possible to go to him, to hear his words. But if you detach that from doing anything, that you've not really heard him at all, you might as well have not really gone to him. So fruit-bearing disciples, they go to Jesus, they hear Jesus, and they live it out, they act upon it. But why? You know, that is a big question. There needs to be a motivation here. Because thinking back to the last few weeks in chapter 6, even just looking at the headings, it looks a bit difficult. Some of it makes me feel, you know, am I not going to miss out here on a few different things? I remember really being struck a few weeks ago by the teaching of forgiveness. Well, actually, in the world's eyes, doesn't that make me quite weak at times? Doesn't that make me appear vulnerable? So what makes following Jesus... Being one of these true disciples, what makes it worth it? Once again, Jesus provides us with a very simple picture. One that will seem so familiar to us who grew up, through, uh, grew up through church with songs about this last one. And it's that life without Jesus is futile. Verses 48 to 49. Uh, it's a really simple story. Looking down it says, They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice, well, he's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. It's a lot more harrowing than I remember as a child, that story. I remember being quite light-hearted and fun, but it's pretty hard-hitting. But again, it's a very clear, very simple illustration. There's, there's a big contrast. We have, um, we have the guys there. We have one that does build a foundation, one that doesn't. We have them held up against a man who goes about doing his life his own way. They both heard Jesus, but only one acted. They both built, but only one had foundations. I think really importantly, they're both hit by this flood. This torrent hits both of them. But only one lived his life with reference to this. And tragically, only one of them survived. So Jesus is once more painting on these pictures that, if anything, seems even more relevant to us. That you, can, you can't imagine it being as relevant to us as it was to them, but it clearly was. Look at the second guy. You know, he doesn't look like an idiot. From the outside, he appears to be doing the same thing as, as the one who gets it right. In fact, in some ways, they're kind of more pragmatic. Right? Maybe the bankers in the, you know, in the congregation are thinking, he's quite an efficient guy. You know, he's saved a few pennies, not bothered with those foundations. He's probably gone up a bit quicker. 
And presumably, you know, they both look comparable. Well, that's at least until the water hits. I can imagine walking past you, you'd imagine thinking, he's done well, superficially, he's got everything. The problem is, it's, it's just incoherent. It's incoherent with the reality of the situation. What he's actually built himself is just a time bomb. You can imagine pitying the other fella. You're walking over to him, looking over at the other house, saying, what are you doing, wasting time building that? You should have just knocked it up quickly. You could have, you know, had more time, done your own thing, been more like me. Because the guy has no awareness of the flood that's coming. He's just assumed that the good times are going to roll on and on. But it seems clear that the flood is absolutely certain. Now, we, we kind of look scornful at this. We can't imagine anyone living without regard of the reality of a situation. You know, if you go on holiday abroad, you look on the internet, you do a little Google, you see what jabs you've got to get, you go get them. It'd be ridiculous not to do so. Uh, I found this great article about big build. I quite like architecture things, like big things. And it was like a superstructure thing on BBC. And it said, the Taipei 101 is a skyscraper in Taiwan. It's the third tallest building in the world. And between the 92nd and the 88th floor, there's no... Um, offices, there's no kind of commercial property in there, which again you can see the bankers thinking, what are they doing, wasting all that space but what it's got inside it is this enormous pendulum, it weighs 660 metric tons and it costs 4 million pounds just for this huge ball, it does sound amazing, yeah all the boys are loving that uh, but part of me you could think that's a bit of a waste of time, a waste of money a waste of construction except that the designers knew that this building would have to withstand typhoons, earthquakes, huge gusts. And that this pendulum at the heart of the structure is what keeps it standing. It was built with an awareness of what was to come. And in fact it's withstood all these things. So it wasn't just worth the effort. It was absolutely necessary. It, they were certain the winds were going to come. And they did. And it stood. If they hadn't bothered doing that. If they'd just gone on regardless. All they'd have now is a multi-million mound of rubble. It would seem ridiculous to ignore the reality of the situation. Please note that the storm in this text, it appears certain. In many ways it seems more certain than those in Taiwan. And I think that's a real wonderful honesty in the passage. It's one of these kind of reality check moments. We need to be prepared. That the storm, it seems indiscriminate. The torrent, it doesn't seem to have any regard for who its target is. It doesn't kind of swerve around the disciples' house. But the man who listened, the man who acted, that built upon a solid foundation, well, his house stands, it takes it, it's staying there. So let's be really clear, let's not mess about it. In this story, we are one of these people. We are building upon either Jesus, the solid foundation, or we're building upon anything else. It doesn't matter what it is, it could be atheism, it could be any other religion, it could just be our own kind of unusual created philosophy. It doesn't matter, it's Jesus versus everything else. And in this picture, Jesus is pointing us towards the certain fact, the inescapable truth, that the ultimate storm of God's wrath will be poured out. And it will be poured out upon us unless we allow it to be poured out upon the solid foundation, unless we have our lives built upon Christ. Unless we build upon the sperm foundation that has already been proven. It's the only foundation that ever could withstand the wrath of God being poured out upon him, which is exactly what he did on the cross in our place. So if you're a Christian here today, then because Jesus is our rock, our firm foundation in this kind of ultimate sense, because he's saving us from this 
ultimate storm of God's wrath. Only because of that can we be certain that Jesus is a firm foundation for everything else. That we can trust in, in him for everything, any other experience in life. That's not to be said it'll be easy. He's not saying you're going to be spared from things. You know, the, the storm hits. But Jesus, he keeps the guy through this. It's all because it's Jesus that bears the fruit in us. It's Jesus that roots us deeply in God's truth. And the big reality check is, well, everyone here, we're all going to stand before God. And the question doesn't get any simpler, really. It could be as simple as, what did you build your life upon? And as Christians, you'll be able to look back at a life-bearing fruit for our Saviour and know exactly what our life is built upon. And it'd be tragic to be in any other position. At the end of, of Jesus' kind of brilliant sermon, he's saying, guys, take a look at yourselves, not others. Don't just nod along. Don't just think it's a nice idea. Are you going to live this out? Are you going to listen and act? Are you going to put into practice what I've taught? And if you have, you'll be prepared for the floods that will come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our rock, that you are our firm foundation. We pray that we might grasp the the wonder of our, our certain and secure future with you. We thank you that on the cross, your precious Son bore your wrath upon himself in our place to your glory. We ask that as a church you would build us up into disciples that seek you in your word and in prayer. We pray that you might give us ears to listen and minds and hearts that are open to you and that we will really embrace and see the joys that come from obedience. Please, Father, help us train our hearts so that the, the words that leave our mouths bring glory to you and you alone and equip us to encourage one another. May the world see your people characterised by your mercy, by your forgiveness and your love. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.